This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Jolly. Coming up on today's episode, the politics of spreadsheets. Everyone's keeping them, the whips are keeping them, the rebels are keeping them, the journalists are keeping them, trying to track where Tory MPs are. We go deep into spreadsheets and our big things today. Coming up in just a moment, Finkelfitch, Daniel Finkelstein and David Aronovich picking over the news. But first, this is what happened when I went down to Westminster. on the left-hand side. Change for the Circle and District Line. Exit for Westminster Abbey and Houses of Parliament. Oh, coming up the escalators then into Portcullis House. Oh, and the main thing you notice is the... Uh, all the trees have been ripped out. All the posh, expensive trees have all been ripped out of Portcullis House. Right, let's see if I can find some MPs to speak to, uh, whether on or off the record. Still doing my rounds in Portcullis House. Highlights so far, former cabinet minister, uh, when I asked exactly how Liz Truss could turn up at PMQs on Wednesday, uh, suggested that she'd get up at the dispatch box, throw a tin of soup at Keir Starmer, and then super glue herself to the dispatch box. I'm totally sure that'll work, but um, it's the best suggestion I've heard so far. Uh, well, the most fruitful part of that was avoiding speaking to uh, Andrew Bridgen and uh, bumping into Rishi Sunak. Um, asked him if he's going to do the quiz. He said, not for a long time. Uh, and then uh, he essentially ran off again. Sorry, we can walk and talk. We can sit there. Oh, perfect, let's watch So I'm now sitting in the dappled shade of a, I don't know what sort of tree this is, on, on a bench in the, just below uh, just below Big Ben. I'm with Sir MP Charles Walker. Charles, first of all, do you know what sort of tree this is? I don't. I should do because notionally, as chairman of the administration committee, I'm responsible for <laughs> upkeep and maintenance. But it's just very beautiful, isn't it? So were you responsible for ripping the trees out of Portcullis House? I think I was, but they were going to fall on someone. Yeah. So it was a choice between the opprobrium of removing trees or ending up in some court for manslaughter. So I, 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 vol- I, I opted for just being hated for ripping up ripping trees. Out the trees. Yeah. Uh, well, let, let's extend the forestry metaphor then. How, how long is it before the Prime Minister gets felled? 
I think it's very difficult for the Prime Minister at the moment. I think what happened today with the new Chancellor Jeremy Hunt rowing back on almost all of the mini-budget of two weeks ago was probably a, well, not probably had to be done, but that puts her in a very difficult position. And I think colleagues uh, don't think her position is sustainable. And so what's the, how would you describe, because obviously Monday afternoon MPs just arriving in Parliament, what would you say is the mood amongst your colleagues? Disappointed, angry, resigned, confused, frustrated. And these emotions will be felt, all of these emotions will be felt every 60 seconds to five minutes. Uh, this, this is not the chaos that people want to live in. It's not the chaos that our constituents want to live in. And it's, it's not the chaos that we as members of parliament want, want to live in. I mean, it has been the most extraordinary last 10 days, two weeks. And I just I think if people were to be honest, they'd say, please make it stop. And so how, how does that happen? Because there's a, there's a difference between I'd like this to stop and then having a plan for making it stop or change. How, how do you see it panning out? Well, I think if, if colleagues really didn't feel they could continue with the current Prime Minister, then they would make their views known and will be making their views known to the Chairman of the 1922 Committee. And then he would have the solemn and unpleasant duty of travelling to number 10 by foot um, to explain to the Prime Minister that her position was no longer sustainable. And do you think that, that sort of critical mass is there in the parliamentary party? I think it's growing. I, I, I think it's, it's, a hugely, it's hugely sad personally for, for the Prime Minister, but clearly you, 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 you can't govern like this. You have to have the support of your party. You, you, it's, just, it's just not there. I mean, that, and that, I don't think that's being disloyal. It's just not there. It's a, it's a statement of fact. It's now a statement of fact. This goes straight to competence. And... You can't have a mini-budget which unravels within two weeks with almost every single measure bar one, which was the reduction in national insurance, um, turned around, dispent, discarded. Yeah. I mean, you've been, Matt, you've been a sort of journalist, political journalist for many years. I mean, I think you, you will not have seen anything like no. this in your 20 years <laughs> in the lobby. No. That is correct. That is correct. Um, and we spoke a couple of weeks ago on the show. And at that point, you thought things were pretty bad, p- probably irrecoverable. I think that was the point where Labour had gone 30 points ahead in the polls. Mm. And you thought that at that point, the Tory party's responsibility was sort of get the country into the best shape as possible before handing over to mm. the inevitable Labour government. Have uh, things got worse since then? And I don't think the position's recoverable, uh, sufficiently recoverable with the current Prime Minister. I think that as and when we get a new leader and prime minister, then the situation can be dramatically improved, but only in the national interest. What we've got to stop uh, talking about is winning the next general election. I'm not interested really in winning the next general election. Uh, uh, The election result will directly reflect whether people think, the population think we've done a a good job in trying to right the ship. And if they think, yep, fair play to them, they made some big mistakes couple of years ago but they've really put their shoulder to the wheel to try and sort it out okay we still don't want them governing the country but we're not going to punish them to the level where they'll be out of office for 15 years you know that's what we've got to look at we've we've got to look at recognizing you only have a leasehold on power and as our leasehold ebbs away we've we've got to make sure that people don't feel too hostile about it as they did in 97 they really didn't didn't like us in 97 
Is there anyone? I mean, partly this is a symptom of having so many leadership contests over the past uh, couple of years. Is there anyone who can do that? The party feels so split into groups and subgroups and, mm-hmm. and division is so entrenched within Tory MPs. Is there anyone who could do that? I mean, people talk about Jeremy Hunt, but, you know, he got, what was it, 18 people thought he should be leader. And I think that might be to Jeremy's advantage. Okay. Because we have so many camps, if, say... Penny got it, who I supported, or Rishi got it, people would say, well, he's not my man, she's not my woman, I feel left out. Whereas if Jeremy got it, he could say, well, none of you supported me, or only a handful of you supported me in the last leadership election. And by the way, I'm not handing out jobs in a sort of form of Dane Gale for having voted for me. I'm going to have the very best people in the cabinet, the people I feel most deserve to be there. It's just funny, because you've said you're not going to stand in the next election. Um, I bet you're, you're pleased not to have all this hanging over you. I just feel so disappointed. I just feel so disappointed. Um, Conservative Party is a, is, a, is a great party and the Labour Party is a great party as well. And to see us bought so low at the moment is just terribly disappointing. But yeah, I think if we get the right person at the helm who doesn't promise Conservative members of Parliament the land of milk and honey and jobs in government, this, that and the other, then we have got a chance of proving in the dying days, the last two years, to the British people that we are a serious organisation and if discarded at the next general election, we might be worth taking a look at in ten years' time, five or ten years' time. And if, if that doesn't happen? Oh, I think we'll be out for 15 years. I think it's, it, it's, it's, it's that existential now. Charles Walker, uh, lovely to see you. I'll let you go off and have a cup of tea. Well, it's 3.30, so now heading up to... Oh, no, I was going to go up to the press gallery for Penny Morden's statement, but the lift's not working, which means trudging up an awful lot of stairs. I now call the leader of the opposition, Keir Starmer, with his urgent question. Thank you, Mr Speaker. To ask the Prime Minister to make a statement on the replacement of the Chancellor of the Exchequer during the current economic situation. (laughs) Mr Speaker, with apologies apologies to the Leader of the Opposition and the House, the PM is detained on urgent business. Okay, so I've just nipped out uh, from the Penny Mordaunt speech responding to the urgent question. The whole thing's a bit weird, to be honest. Keir Starmer probably had the best line, saying that uh, the lady is not for turning up. It's quite funny. Uh, Penny Mordaunt just kept saying that the Prime Minister was detained on urgent business. And then wouldn't tell us what it was. <laughs> a bit weird. It culminated in the, the best quote probably ever uttered at the dispatch box. The Prime Minister is not uh, under a desk. In fact, it seems that Penny Morton <laughs> did know exactly what the Prime Minister was doing, wasn't allowed to say. It seems that the Prime Minister was in talks with Graham Brady, the chair of the 1922 committee, the man who, in theory, would be the one to go and tell her to resign. We don't think he did that today, but, you know, who knows, uh, frankly. Lots of Tory MPs basically looked like they wanted to be sick sitting behind her. But Pony Morton making a decent fist of it, certainly doing no harm for the PM for PM campaign, which I'm almost certain is, you know, still alive and kicking behind the scenes somewhere. Oh, we should probably head back in now. It's what uh, 
uh, just coming up to half four, uh, Jeremy Hunt uh, coming in for his statement as Chancellor. Oh, in fact, uh, Liz Truss is here as well. Lovely. Oh, it turns out she's fine. This government will take the difficult decisions necessary to ensure there is trust and confidence in our national finances. That means decisions of eye-watering difficulty. Well, as Liz Truss leaves the chamber to cries of bye uh, from uh, Labour MPs, I think I might do the same and head downstairs and try and get uh, some reaction from MPs on uh, what they make of, uh, of what's just gone on. I've now uh, just caught sitting down in a quiet corner uh, with Jake Bowie, chairman of the Conservative Party. It's all going very well. Well, it's good to see you, Matt. You've managed to pin me down here in Parliament. But look, I've, I've just done a whole series of interviews, and I think the real key thing for your listeners is to understand that the stability that Jeremy Hunt is talking about today is about ensuring that every household in our United Kingdom can afford to put the heating on in the winter. That's why we've already acted in terms of people's gas and electricity prices, not just for households, but for businesses. People are getting the national insurance cut this month if they are paying national insurance. But on the wider point of the mini-budget just you know, a few weeks ago, when facts change, it is completely reasonable for the government to change its position to prioritise the finances of every household in this country. It's the right thing to do. And I think the Prime Minister has actually shown great leadership in, in doing that. Why was the mini-budget the right thing to do three weeks ago and now the wrong thing to do today? When the only th- the facts haven't changed, lots of people warned that unfunded tax cuts, Rishi Sunak warned unfunded tax cuts, will be bad for the economy. Uh, why was it the right thing to do? You defended it three weeks ago and now you're, you're supporting the idea of putting it in the bin. We've seen, well, the absolute cornerstone of that mini-budget was providing help with people's gas and electricity No, it wasn't. Bills. The, the it Prime Minister announced it before that. She did it before, in fact, even before the Queen died, a couple of weeks beforehand. I, I can tell you about it. Sorry. We're, we're legislating on it today. Mm. It was the absolute corner. It was the biggest spending commitment by far yeah. in that. It was the right thing to do. You Look, just think back just a few months. You were reporting on your programme, Times Radio, a radio station I listen to all the time, that, you know, average household bills could be up to 6,500. Four million businesses would have to shut their doors tens of millions of people potentially losing their job. If we hadn't have acted, then that's what people would be faced with. Look, in terms of, you know, the wider instability we've seen in global markets, that is what has made it right for the government to act now. It's not an easy thing to do. The Prime Minister, you know, has shown, I believe, real leadership with Jeremy Hunt in terms of ensuring that we're on the side of every household in this country. I want to show you something, just to get your... So I'm not putting words in your mouth. This tweet you, you sent, uh, only, only the 19th, uh, 9th of October, uh, about how Labour said they opposed a paddy-off income tax. You said tax cuts from last month's mini-budget would be reversed by Labour, costing the average worker £500. Labour's anti-growth coalition hurting working people in this country. Does that mean that Liz Truss is now a member of the anti-growth coalition? The Prime Minister certainly is not a member of any coalition. She's a very strong leader for our party. Um, you know, the point is that we have already cut everyone's taxes if they pay national insurance. I don't think many people differentiate in their, in their pay slip between national insurance and tax. You're just giving less to the government. I fundamentally believe that people make better decisions about spending their own money than the government does. And when you actually add all those better decisions together, you end up with a better But if Labour, if Labour were the anti-growth coalition for not wanting to cut income tax, why is the... Prime Minister not now a member of the Anti-Growth Coalition when she's gone back on her promise to cut income tax? Well, I think I've said we have cut taxes for everyone. Not income tax, on that specific? Well, 
we have cut tax for every working household in this country. And truth is, look, why do I think Labour's part of the anti-growth coalition? It's because they have MPs going and standing on picket lines with trade unions, uh, you know, not least over the summer, stopping my nephew going and taking one of his GCSEs because he couldn't get to school. I know whose side we're on. We're on the side of hard-working people who get up every morning, do the right thing, go to work, put the extra hours in. Um, they're the people we should be on the side of, not trade unions who are disrupting our country, not people who are supergluing themselves to, to the roads and stopping people go to work. I think that is what the British public expect their government to do, and it's exactly what we're doing. Uh, just look, finally, looking at the polls, there's a new poll out, it's just come out the l- last hour or so, showing Labour got a 36-point lead. As party chairman, you're in touch with members, you're in touch with MPs, but party members too. So how long is it before you you have to go and say to the Prime Minister, there's a problem here, this isn't working, we need to try something else? Look, we've got, you know, I accept we've got a, a difficult winter ahead of us. I think we've seen that in the statement by the Chancellor today, absolutely prioritising stability for the economy. How that affects real people, is this isn't some, you know, economics, GCSE or A-level that we're writing an essay. And this is about real people and, and households. And it's about, you know, ensuring through our stability plan that mortgages don't go up, that people through the energy, you know, think energy price cap we have already taken can afford to turn the heating on this winter. I think polls reflect that it is a very difficult world where the sort of there is a global economic crisis mainly fueled by the illegal war in Ukraine. So I'll look at the polls as we get towards the election. There's no general election now. I don't believe there's going to be any general election before 2024 when people see that our plan is working to protect them, their households and their family. I hope and believe that they will uh, they will come and support us. And your message to some of your colleagues on and off the record saying the Prime Minister needs to resign, what do you say to them? I don't think the country wants us to be having some political game playing here in Westminster. People are genuinely worried. People are nervous and that's why it was right that the Prime Minister and the Chancellor acted today to ensure that we are protecting people up and down this land. Now is not the time for uh, political game playing, so whoever is involved in political games, I've never played them in my entire time in Parliament, I would rather suggest that they you know, concentrated on working in the national interest rather than self-interest. Jake Bay, Tory Chambers, thanks very much. Good to see you. Oh, there we go. Uh, so there goes Jake Berry. Uh, just while we've been talking, luckily I have my phone on uh, airplane mode so we couldn't see the messages coming in. Uh, one MP messages me we should get behind and prioritise our time and effort on those we stood to represent another uh, MP just says Hunt should be PM so it's all going very well down here in Westminster I'm just heading up now to the meeting room where Liz Truss is going to address the One Nation Conservatives in the Macmillan room just up above PCH in fact, here she comes. This is Liz Trusters coming through. Now, a couple of people feebly calling out, you've got to resign. Uh, she's just telling Damien Green, uh, one nation's never been more popular. Uh, well, we'll see about that. This is the, uh, the meeting where uh, some of those on the... Well, they'd probably call themselves centrists, but on the left of the Tory party, anyway, uh, may well be pretty blunt with the Prime Minister about how much longer she's got in the job. So I've just heard from an MP who's inside the room that uh, Liz Truss is doing fine. Uh, she apologised for making mistakes and called for unity at the start. Will a plea for unity work? Uh, I mean, it's only Monday. It's 
quite a lot of this week left to go. So my overwhelming sense, having been down in Westminster, is that inaction is a very powerful force in politics. We'll discuss that more with today's columnist panel. Meet the Cerberus of columnists. The Janus of journalism. And the ultimate political portmanteau of opinion. It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! Finkelvich with Daniel Finkelstein and David Aronovich on Times Radio. Yeah, some Tory party members might be having bias remorse, but no regrets here. Uh, we're joined this morning by Danny Finkelstein. Morning, Danny. Good morning. I do have bias remorse, but not something I bought. I regret very much that Conservative Party members decided to choose Liz Truss over Richard Zinek. <laughs> I'm not sure that counts as bias remorse. That sort of on, onlookers remorse. Uh, and uh, David Aronovich is here as well. David, morning. I, I I had a spell, and some people would say it's gone on for a long time, of having really bad taste about buying shirts. Uh, and I once went to Hugo Boss, and I bought a shirt which is kind of yellow background with ducks on it, big ducks. Uh, and honestly... I put it on once. It was so appalling. Um, uh, and I, I, so I do really, I, I, I very much regret that. I regretted it at the time. Fortunately, it was a very long time ago. And since then, I have become incredibly well known for my, uh, for, for, for just how elegant. <laughs> what were you laughing at? Sorry, what's that laugh? I've, no, prob- I've probably anyway. done some, I've probably done some, because I quite like a jaunty shirt as well. I'm just trying to think if there's one that I've bought, which I've, Completely, not really, not completely regretted. Have you still uh, got? Have you still got the duck shirt? No, 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 absolutely not. There, uh, there were a whole series of things when I got together with my with my wife Sarah that just went straight out. I mean, a whole series of things just disappeared, including a gold chain I'd rather like that had been given to me by a previous girlfriend, and she just said, "You can't wear a gold chain." And I said, "Why not?" She says, "Because it really looks awful on you." And yeah. You, and, and so, and so, was this a gold and, chain that you wore underneath the Hugo Boss duck shirt? Well, kind of. Unbuttoned to the navel. You could unbutton to the navel, as if. I mean, you could see, <laughs> you could see a little, you could see a little glint just at the kind of collar line. I thought it was so good. I was so wrong. The, I mean, Ivanovich's history of fashion is definitely something we should pursue on another day. Uh, let's actually focus then on the uh, buyer's remorse or otherwise of uh, of uh, Tory party members. What would you do right now, Danny, if you were a Conservative MP? Look, I, 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 the, my problem is I've lo- I lost the path a long time ago, right? So I wouldn't have had Brexit. I wouldn't have had Boris Johnson. I wouldn't have had Boris Johnson's deal. I wouldn't have had the Northern Ireland Protocol. I wouldn't then, uh, therefore, have had the parties. I wouldn't then, uh, it, once that had happened, have had Liz Truss. Uh, I've I've lost the the path a long time ago. Um, but but I but I I now think it's important for Conservative Party members to think this, right? When we have this question, we begin immediately to think what is in the interest of the Conservative Party. The Conservative Party has got to stop doing that and start to think what's in the interest of the country. At this point, the country needs a prime minister who is strong in charge of their government, capable of doing the job, capable of articulating the case for the government. And Liz Truss is not it. And if the Conservative Party wishes to continue in government, it has to provide a prime minister that is it. Otherwise, it can't continue in government. Yeah. David, any other yeah, any I, other views? Uh, you probably noticed that my <laughs> that, that my that... oh we've we lost him have we lost him um oh, no, he's back he's back, uh, he's back. 
Say that again, uh, can David. You hear me we now? Just, can we you just hear briefly me now, lost Matt? you then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, 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 no. I said so, so, no. For some reason, there's a, an unstable connection here, etc. But I heard most of what uh, Danny said, and he's clearly right. Uh, and everybody thinks it, except the Conservative Party. But the problem that they've got is they don't see a path towards making the change. That seems to be the problem. And so what I think we really need to know from Danny, if Danny can inform us, is what he thinks the most likely path to being able to do the thing that he's just recommended would be. Right. Well, there are a number of different paths that are possible, um, but they start with the recognition that um, there are a choice between two bad situations because the Conservative Party has put itself in a bad situation. Um, and therefore, that if it did get rid of the leader, that would obviously look chaotic and ridiculous. Uh, and it's quite probable that whoever took over would start from a position where it'd be difficult to explain the party's case to the country. So I think you just have to swallow that. That is inevitable. And you can't think that if you kept Liz Trust, you would avoid that problem. You would not avoid that problem. So you're choosing between two bad situations. How do you do it? One option is for the cabinet to make it clear to the prime minister that she cannot continue because they wouldn't continue to serve her. Uh, another option is clearly for the 1922 committee to make that uh, judgment. Um, and then uh, the Conservative Party needs to choose a membership system, uh, a, a voting system that either congregates around one candidate, I think probably that won't happen, uh, or accepts that there'll be multiple candidates, but uh, sets the rules of the election in such a way, either that they're choosing a prime minister and not the leader of the party and therefore don't have to go uh, to party members, or they uh, set such a large threshold uh, or agree among the candidates that the certain person would drop out. They, they can't start going back to the members, not because of the interests of the Conservative Party, but because we cannot be without with, without Prime Minister for several months. The party members had a bite at choosing the leader. It was a failure. Uh, now that, uh, that the members of Parliament, who were by no means without culpability, and obviously I share responsibility as a Conservative as well, I can't get round that, um, the, uh, the, the, the right thing to do is to make the tough decisions, accepting that that's still going to be second best yeah. to, you know, to what could have been. Now, the members of the cabinet really cannot do this. You know, your first, the reason why is that they all did their own little auditions for Liz Trust during the leadership election. And it's all up there in black and white. Liz is the person to lead her. She's got the, etc. Remember, it was humiliating. You knew they didn't believe it. You knew they thought it was rubbish, but they thought they'd get jobs that way. And there's no way from underneath that. So I imagine that actually the 1922 committee type route is going to have to be the one that, that works, isn't it? Uh, and also you're going to have to have some kind of little pact between between the, the people who stand which is the one who gets the top votes becomes prime minister and the one who comes second says i'm not gonna i, I won't stand against yeah. you a but bit like happened with theresa, theresa may and andrea ledson more or less did that when theresa may became prime minister Matt, Matt's not wrong. Inertia is very strong in this, and we shouldn't assume that because it is in the interests of the country and because it is in the interest of the Conservative Party, Liz Truss will necessarily fall. Well, uh, yeah, so that, I wanted to ask you um, about that. Just, I and, was really she struck, really may not. I was really struck down in Westminster yesterday just how depressed lots of Tory MPs were, but felt powerless. And I just, inaction is such a powerful force in politics that doing nothing... You know, they did nothing uh, yeah. with Theresa May for, well, more than a year after she lost the majority. And even then she limped on for another six months. Jeremy Corbyn, you know, went on and on and on, despite most Labour MPs wanting rid of him. Boris Johnson, too. It took, you know, six, seven, eight months before they finally got rid of him. Boris Johnson fell from power because Rishi Sunak took it upon himself to, to resign uh, because he felt 
two things. Um, uh, one thing which has been commented on, he resigned because of all the uh, shenanigans with the parties and his suitability to be leader. But secondly, he resigned because he couldn't stop Boris Johnson uh, from his borrowing policy, which Rishi Sunak thought was a mistake. So remember that the reason Rishi Sunak gave for resigning was because of a disagreement with the Prime Minister about VAT. Uh, this was part of a larger disagreement about whether or not Boris Johnson could would be allowed by his Chancellor to institute precisely the budget that Kwasi Kwarteng just instituted and collapse the markets. Um, the 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 truth is there aren't that many people willing to do what Rishi Sunak did, particularly because he paid the price of then not being able to become the leader. Although um, I think so, it is worth I think it is worth recalling that he managed to do it exactly something like half an hour after Sajid Javid had done it. Um, no, he did it at the same time actually, David. It was it they, 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 the two of them did it. I mean that they did do it the same. I, I, difficult to explain but i did I, I know for a fact they did it independently and at the same time but the, the that's that's irrelevant sajid also by the way did do it uh did do a very um brave thing uh and showed a lot of integrity although both of them took longer i think than they should have done but they both took showed great integrity uh i think sajid's was less consequential just because he wasn't chancellor but the the um the truth is that they both paid quite a big price neither of them in the government now um and uh, people may just look at it and think, well, I don't want to pay that price. My my view is they've got to think about the country at this point. Can the country be led for what the Conservative Party proposes be two years of um, a prime minister who's totally lost the mandate that she had even from the members and didn't have a mandate from the country, working on a policy that is at variance with the way that the Conservative Party won the 2019 election and without the skills necessary to give the give either voters or the markets confidence and i you and know i there, just feel you can't do that and, and and there you put your finger on it really uh, uh danny because uh looking at the possibility of another two years of the conservative party in power whoever leads it fills most people i suggest with a kind of sense of depression which is really profound this psychodrama for the Conservative Party has now been going on for six to seven years, probably even longer, depending on how you want to kind of date it. We've seen it come and go in all its various manifestations. We've seen the, the intelligence of the electorate and of commentators insulted time after time after time as people have put up implausible reasons and effectively more or less just lied about why they were doing what they were doing. And it just feels to me like it's come to the end of the road, but we can't somehow get to the end of the road because the Conservative Party, of course, won't vote for a general election. No, there's another reason for that, which is that the which is that the, in 2019, the Conservative Party won an 80 seat majority and we live in a parliamentary democracy and it won an 80 seat majority because the Labour Party advanced a completely unsuitable uh, individual. Yeah. And also because uh, having had a referendum, Parliament uh, decided to resist implementing the referendum which it did um despite all the nuances of that debate and that was bound to provoke the kind of reaction it did um or at least not bound to but it was highly plausible that it would do but both things um, are true both things are and true so and so the conservative party does have a uh you know d does uh that's the reason why the conservative party's got five no. years in office um and um but i would agree with you that it is you know that that it's now broken down to to a point where it's finding it hard to govern and it has to uh that what the members need to think about the members of parliament need to think about is not um 
you know, and I know why people do this, what not just, you know, how do I save my seat or look at the opinion polls or, you know, this is embarrassing or whatever. They need to think about how do we actually govern the country if we intend to do that to the end of our period in office, considering that we got a mandate and we are a parliamentary party and we're elected as a parliamentary party. And if they, you know, you're right, if they can't accept that responsibility, then they then obviously they have to go. Uh, they, they, but, but, uh, but, you know, my hope is, and my urging on them is that they do accept that responsibility. Well, hold that thought because I want to come back to uh, <laughs> exactly that in just a moment uh, because it's always fascinating uh, speaking to Fingovich. Daniel Finkelstein and David Aronovich are both here. One thought that I just had listening to you, you speaking is that, if you don't mind me saying so, you're both a bit older than me. Um, compare, <laughs> compare where we are right now to the 90s. Post-Black post Wednesday... Uh, John John Smith giving way to Tony Blair. How does this compare to that time? Because speaking to Charles Walker earlier, uh, Conservative MP, he was basically saying that now the Tories, they're going to lose the next election. It's just a choice of whether they lose it by a bit and can come back or out of power for 15 years. Danny. Well, but I, I took the view after the 97 election that we did all that we could to try to make that parliament go on as long as we could. And uh, in order, hoping that something would turn up and it never did turn up. And then I think by making it go on as long as we could, we simply doomed ourselves to uh, greater defeat. But it has to be said, we had, I, I was proud to work for John Major and, and uh, as a man. And um, in terms of what he was trying to do, I found that re uh, it was pretty difficult at times and the Conservative Party had lost its way. But I, you know, didn't find a problem working for him but i think the situation is profoundly different now um th this prime minister is coming on a map you know she doesn't seem to me to have the abilities to 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 get herself out of the situation she's put herself in and i and i you know i think that that is a different situation and so worse than than the period between 92 and 97 uh, what about you david um i i don't think people thought that john major lacked integrity uh, I thought they thought I think they thought he was not an effective prime minister for various reasons. And we can talk about that. I actually like John Major a lot as a person uh, and have a great deal of respect for him. But, I, but remembering back to the time that Tony Blair's uh, blows on him for being weak and ineffective landed because he was leading a, an obviously divided party. Uh, and a party that no longer had a reputation for economic competence, despite the fact the economy was actually uh, uh, in quite a good situation at the point when the election happens. I think this is entirely different. I think people really loathe this government. Um, a large number of people really dislike it um, and really want it gone. Um, uh, and there's not that kind of tired feeling that you had at the end of the John Major administration really I think there is a feeling of genuine exhaustion about uh, about the Conservative Party uh, and it feels to me uh, as if it needs a complete a, 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 a kind of a, it needs to be worked over really and brought up into the uh, into the middle of the 21st century which is not where it currently is yeah. ideologically or in any other or any other kind of way that is not to say that uh labor is the finished article or anything remotely like it yeah. but i do think that it is on the right journey in the right direction with roughly the right people um and that's what happens in a democracy you get an alternation and somebody else uh gets to have a go uh, and i think that's really what the country a country desperately requires but getting there is a real problem just finally then it's gonna be a huge moment pmqs tomorrow assuming that liz truss is there uh, what would you ask um, if you were Keir Starmer? What would be your opening opening gambit to Liz Truss? 
because uh, it's going to be it's going to be a hell of a moment given that everything uh, she said even last week has now got yeah, in the bin. Look, I mean, I think I think I'd pick on the things that she said, and I'd look. I'd start with the leadership campaign things that she said, the debate she had with Rishi Sunak. I'd pick on those things, and you know, there are various of those things that are completely unanswerable. Does she still stand with? You, you, you need to craft PMQ questions. So I don't want to do it on the fly, but that <laughs> if I was if I was preparing it, and I did for obviously for quite a long time, yeah. That I, the first thing I would do was go through the transcripts of all of her debates and interviews where she defended her mini budget, quasi. Quartang's mini budget. I might, I might ask her about his whether the budget was his or hers. Uh, for example, that would be a, a, a fertile area. She sat for chancellor. Um, what? Why is she still there? Yeah, I might do. What about you, David? I would, I would simply say, does the prime minister not realise that the country wants her to go? Daniel Finkelstein and David Aronovich, and of course you can read them both in the Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next is the politics of spreadsheets. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze. Relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Redbox Podcast now. It's time for this. Yeah, everyone is logging on this morning to crunch the numbers on exactly how much support Liz Truss has. So today... We wanted to tackle the politics of spreadsheets going inside the WHIPS operation to monitor MPs' views. Well, it's not just the, the WHIPS who are keeping their spreadsheets updated. Grant Shapps, one of the ringleaders of rebellion against Liz Truss, has got himself a new phone, a Samsung Galaxy Fold. It folds out so he can look at his own spreadsheet more easily on a double-sized screen. He was showing it to me just the other day. Uh, his spreadsheet contains more than 6,000 historic data points. Uh, recording every conversation he's ever had with an MP, which you might think is a bit much. But what are the political spreadsheets saying? Well, so far, five MPs have called on Liz Trust to resign. Crispin Blunt was the first to go. He's, here's what he told Times Radio yesterday. It's self-evident that a Prime Minister with uh, single-figure approval ratings is not going to be able to carry the authority to give the message to the, the public, the markets, media, her colleagues about the difficult decisions that are going to have to be made. Toy MP Crispin Blunt was then followed by James Wallace and that political titan Andrew Bridgen. Then yesterday, Angela Richardson uh, became number four. 
And so I just don't think that it's tenable that she can stay in her position any longer. And I'm very sad to have to say that. Then yesterday, Charles Walker became number five. He told me what he thought would happen if the Tories didn't remove the Prime Minister. Oh, I think we'll be out for 15 years. I think it's, it, it's, it's, it's that existential now. However, what the rest of MPs think is unclear. I and mean, that's a strong indication of where opinion within the party is moving. It's possible that maybe nothing decisive will happen. But one person trying to track all this is the is Lara Spirit, reporter for Times Red Box, and joins me now. Hi, Lara. Hi, Matt. In your, I don't know if you've got a physical spreadsheet or maybe just a mental one, uh, where do you think the maths is adding up this morning? It's obviously extremely uh, difficult to say. I'm sure Grant Schaap's probably with 6,000 entry points has a closer idea uh, of this than I do. But I think it's fair to say that uh, the meetings yesterday indicated that actually it's worse for her than we might have thought. I think it was interesting looking at the One Nation group, that supposedly 100 strong uh, group of MPs who had kind of previously been considered to actually be quite conciliatory towards trust, who have wanted to focus their interventions on specific policies rather than kind of existentially trying to end her premiership altogether. Now, the meeting yesterday they seem to have had quite a positive write-up. But actually, a number of MPs who I've spoken to have said that uh, they're actually just a bit more temperate and dispositionally polite than people like the ERG or other factions uh, in the party. And actually, when you spoke to the people after, they were saying it's hopeless, that most of them definitely want her to go, that the idea is now just who they back. I think it's very hard to have a conversation with an MP at the moment who's positive about Truss's future. Last night, Grant Schapp said that, you know, she's got an extremely uh, difficult kind of game ahead to see whether she'll be able uh, to do it would be very very difficult I think it's very impossible to say exactly where MPs are but the kind of main and I think only thing that can extend Truss's time now is the fact that they haven't agreed on the mechanism by which to remove her and they certainly haven't agreed on a potential unity candidate or ticket to replace her either and I think that's what will extend uh, her tenure a bit longer. And I suppose that's the key thing isn't it is the 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 well, we clearly the spreadsheet that Grant Shapps is running on the 45p tax rates, it just became very clear that the, the, the private, you know, making lots of phone calls, and he wasn't the only one. Michael Gove was uh, doing it as well, uh, and other. I mean, lots of former chief whips seem to be involved in this. Uh, they became it just became quite clear that the, the numbers who would vote against the, for, the, the cut in the 45p tax rate uh, just meant that they had to to U-turn it. This is more difficult, isn't it? Because everyone has a slightly different view. When should Liz Trust go? Should she go? Who should replace her? There's lots of variables in that. Quite difficult to record that in a column. Yeah, I think that's very true. And actually, one of the more interesting things I heard Grant Shapp speak last night about his uh, kind of spreadsheet uh, hobby is that he said that in the case of Tory leadership contests and elections, it's actually much more complicated because although he can uh, say that so-and-so is 50% likely to back this person or 50% likely to back this person, of course, you don't actually know with the various rounds who's ended up backing yeah. each candidate. So it actually becomes quite difficult for him in that case to be able to ascertain uh, where people are. So he was quite, he was kind of quite humble about the limits of being able to do that uh, in the spreadsheet game. Another interesting thing about Grant that's the kind of master number cruncher, or at least that's kind of how some people see him in Westminster. Is last night when he was asked about jobs that he wouldn't want to do, he said he'd never want to be chief whip, which I suppose is slightly tangential to this conversation. <laughs> but I thought it was quite interesting that actually it can be a really thankless job and a difficult one uh, to do. And most whips will have particular spreadsheets, but it's very difficult at the moment because a number of MPs are saying one thing and and doing another, and people who are lobbying uh, privately 
for certain candidates obviously are unable to say that publicly either or will have suspicions potentially about where Grant Shapps is on this also. So there's so many different variables about where things are. But the mood this morning definitely seems to be ever so uh, slightly calmer, although when you speak to MPs, it seems to be that nobody can see how she specifically gets out of this, but nobody can also really say with any certainty how it is that she's finished either. Laura, just stay there because I want to bring in a spreadsheet aficionado. Uh, Matilda Davis is a data journalist at the Times. Uh, morning, nice to see you. Morning. Um, explain how you use spreadsheets and then we'll try to work out how they might actually work in, in politics. Why are spreadsheets so good for what you do? So spreadsheets are a really good way of analysing data um, because understanding them just by looking at them is fairly simple. Uh, it's pretty intuitive, um, but they actually have a huge amount of functionality and processing power uh, for processing large amounts of data, both quantitative, quantitative and qualitative. And how, how would you do it? Because if you've got, I don't know, some data on average earnings by constituency, they are facts that you can then process and you know reorder or, like you said, analyse them to work out, you know, change over time or different, you know, put them against a different data set. With this, you're talking about sort of sentiment of human beings who might also not always be telling the truth. So how would you, if you were trying to set up a spreadsheet that captured that, is it possible to do that? Yeah, it's certainly possible. It's it's a difficult one with qualitative data and sentiment analysis is very, very difficult to do with spreadsheets. But um, I was interested by Shaps rates people's support of yeah, uh, yeah. trust and, you know, different policies from zero to one. Um, which I think is a really good way of doing it. Obviously, you have to kind of use your own intuition about how you would rate those. But by making that into numerical data, it then becomes a lot easier to deal with. Because if you're dealing with, what, 350 Tory MPs, that's quite a lot. You know, that's a, that's a long way down the spreadsheet, never mind mm. all the columns that you then might put into it. What, what for you, when you're crunching data, what's the best stuff that you've got out of a spreadsheet? Um... That's a really interesting question. Um, I think doing qualitative analysis is often one of the most interesting things you can do um, because a lot of people don't yeah, think of it as data so much. Um, we did some really interesting work uh, earlier in the year about the Eurovision Song Contest, which is not something that people think of as being kind of a data-heavy yeah, yeah. subject. Um, but diving into data sets like that, which do include you know lots of points uh, and comments from the judges and things like that um, can be really interesting so and a really fun it, way of approaching it. Um, so we found, yeah, lots of cool stuff that, you know, Ireland have won it more than anyone else, uh, but Sweden have actually gotten more points uh, over the history of Eurovision since 1957. Um, but actually, the on average, the country that gets the most points per year is the Ukraine. Um, oh, right. Yeah, which... A lot of people are surprised yeah, yeah, by. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I suppose that at least you've got some data. But maybe, maybe that's what Lara. That, maybe that's what Grant Chaps needs to be doing is asking people. You know, if they give, Liz, you know, marking her out of ten like Eurovision. You know, and how <laughs> what, once he works out how many giving a nil point, then that's the way that she. You know, that's when they know that, that, that a tipping point has been reached. Yeah, and actually listening to that, it does make you think about just how much time it would take for somebody like Grant Shapps on his own to be able to draw anything like a comprehensive qualitative set of where MPs are on this. It was interesting when he spoke about this, because I think he kind of made his name in the spreadsheet world of politics uh, when he predicted with 
what he said was was almost perfect accuracy really uh, the outcome of Theresa May's famous meaningful votes on on Brexit which of course you'll remember and, and obviously that is a slightly easier uh, thing to do than at the moment where you're having a lot of uh, conversations with a lot of MPs I mean it must take a long time and it's unclear whether Grant Chaps has got any kind of minions doing that on his behalf I'm not sure necessarily that uh, he will do so it's difficult and I, I would love to know a bit more about those kind of 6,000 entry points uh, that he's gone in, in, in this case but yeah as you say it's it's a very difficult thing to model with uh, any degree of precision. It'll be interesting to see uh, where he gets to with it. Uh, well, we did ask Grant Champs if he wants to come on. He said he didn't want to talk about process. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, uh, Lava Spirit, Times Red Box reporter, uh, Matilda Davis, uh, data journalist at the Times. Thanks for, thanks for talking us through all of that. But as, as Lara was saying there, uh, in terms of the WIP's ability to track rebellions... Uh, they rely an awful lot on spreadsheets. Well, one person who knows better than anyone is Simon Burton. He was a special advisor to the chief whip under both Theresa May and Boris Johnson. And he explained to me how the whip's office use spreadsheets uh, right down to how they are built. I spent six years in, in the whip's office, so and, and the spreadsheets never really changed during that time beyond the fluctuations within the parliamentary party. And over time, you added more and more columns to it. But broadly, it was done on an issue by issue basis. And those spreadsheets would be run according to what votes you had coming up. And you you broadly, you have the name of the MP, you have various other bits of information about them, you know, constituency majority, who they backed in referendums or uh, leadership campaigns or all those kind of things, who's second place in their in their constituency. And then the columns on the issue. So are they supporting the government? Yes or no? And if not, why not? And and what particular vote are you not supporting the government on and why? And the way that would be populated is ahead of a big vote, all the whips would ring their flocks or text their flocks and say, you're with the government, and they'd have that conversation. I'd have sent them a script in advance and saying, these are the questions that we need covered off. And if for any reason somebody comes back and says, no, I'm not happy about X, you, you then go through a triage process of that maybe speak to a more senior whip, then maybe a junior minister, the bill minister, the secretary of state, and then and then maybe uh, eventually the, the chancellor or the prime minister, depending on, on what, what the vote was. So it's really a way of mustering views, putting it in one place and, and seeing if you have enough votes to get over the line ahead of ahead of the day itself. And I suppose during the time you, you had a small majority, no majority, a big majority. And I suppose that makes a big difference to how alarming it is to find one MP is unhappy on an issue. Maybe they could just find themselves elsewhere on the day of the vote. Whereas when, when things are much closer, suddenly it's all hands on deck. And, and collecting that information on absolutely everyone suddenly becomes vital. Absolutely. I mean, when we had no majority and we were in with the, the DUP particularly, you know, you found that individual MPs had disproportionate power. But equally, you, and the old adage of you spend 90% of your time dealing with 10% of the people was was very much, very much the case. But largely, I would say that 90% of the parliamentary party realised, well, actually, we've got to tuck together on this and we've got to stay stay together. Whereas when we had a larger majority after the 2019 election, very much that, that feeling of collectiveness dissipated a little bit and MPs were like well actually I don't matter as much on this one because you've got a majority of 80 I can do this thing and suddenly you get 15 experienced MPs who are doing that your majority is not looking quite what it was and you're expected to smash every vote out of the park and being the government you you have to assume 
every opposition MP is going to turn up. And this is something that backbenchers don't always understand. You know, you'll win a vote by, you'll say this is desperate and you win by 50. They say, well, I'm not actually, I'm not actually needed them, am I? And you're like, well, we didn't know they weren't all going to turn up. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's, it's one of those funny things. So you went through both the, uh, the decline and fall of uh, Theresa May and Boris Johnson. What advice would you give to those keepers of the spreadsheet uh, right now once the sort of cat is out of the bag, is there any way of, of sort of shoring things up for Prime Minister who's in trouble? I think the, it's a very important job of, of the Whip's office. They've got to be a conduit in, in, in both directions. And, and I'm sure the Chief Whip un, understands that, that they've got to speak truth to power in number 10 and say, look, guys, we've got an issue here. You've got to listen. And equally, they've got to transmit the message from number 10 back to the Parliamentary Party. And that can sometimes be be very difficult because you, you, you feel as a whip's office, you're probably, you're a bit Dr. Noish because you're saying, no, you can't do this. Or have you spoken to these people? No, 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 not ready yet. Roll the pitch a bit more. And you're a bit the, the Eeyore um, in the corner of the room. But hopefully they've learned that they've got to be in the room. If they're not having those conversations or they're not included, that's what, that is usually where, where disaster emanates from. And at the same time, they've got to turn around to the, the parliamentary party and say, in order to have a loyal and functioning party, it takes two to tango. You can't have an unwilling dance partner. So give the prime minister time, chance and space. You know, she's made the changes. She's got a new chancellor in. Let's see how the markets react. Let's slowly, slowly catch a monkey on this. Because when any political party tears itself apart, the only party that benefits is whoever's in opposition. I remember watching when when I was much younger in my career, watching um, James Purnell coming out and resigning or Jeff Hoon and Patricia Hewitt, I think it was challenging or or allegedly going to challenge Gordon Brown. And it was like, well, as a Tory, that's great for us. And we're now on the receiving end of that. And hopefully the Whip's office should be calm, collected and be that voice of reason and providing that context to, to both sides and just buying time but equally, when, when it does come to it, delivering unpalatable messages to, to either side as well. And is that a role of the chief whip? Because, I mean, there's lots of talk about Graham Brady as the chairman of the 1922 going and telling the prime minister the game is up. Is that also a role for the chief whip? Is that what happened with Boris Johnson and Theresa May? It very, very much is. I mean, I wasn't in those conversations. The chief whip usually goes on in, in those meetings by, by himself in, into number 10. But they should constantly be feeding back and explaining that the, the, their messages are no longer getting through, that things are looking very difficult. It shouldn't, it should, in, my, in my view, it shouldn't just be up to Graham, Graham Brady because the whip's office as a whole, you know, you've got 17-odd ministers there who are having conversations with their flocks about the state of their associations, feedback from members, the electoral politics, as well as the issues and the careers and the views of the party and all that kind of thing. So they're the ones who get the full 360 view and if it's the chief whip who's who's not having those conversations with the prime minister, then it feels to me that that would be a bit bit disjointed. So just finally, then Simon, you've been around a long time. Mm-hmm. What are Liz Truss's chances? It looks very difficult at the moment, but things have looked difficult for for prime ministers in in the past. I mean, Boris went on a lot longer than I think after the original party stuff broke, and it took an, an issue like the, the resignation of Chris Pincher to to topple. Him, Theresa May, if you'd have said after the 2017 election, you're going to govern for two more years, everyone would have sort of been slightly incredulous at the thought of that at the time. This is unbelievable to to make that prediction. So I guess I'm going to sit on the fence a little bit. But what I would say is 
it takes a lot for MPs to write letters. There's this constant speculation of how many letters are in. And given it is an anonymous process, you would think that would that would lead to more putting in letters than, than fewer. But it, it feels to me that they're still slightly reluctant to do that. So I, I don't think it's going to be as imminent as as perhaps the, the journalists would, would like it <laughs> to be. But, but that makes great, uh, great stuff to report on in the meantime. There's Simon Burton there, the uh, former special advisor to the Chief Whip under both Theresa May and Boris Johnson. So he knows a little bit about keeping the spreadsheet of exactly where MPs are. We're taking a look at political spreadsheets. Everyone from the Whip's office to Mark well, Grabshaps uh, crunching the numbers on where MPs are and the prospects of Liz Truss surviving. So we just heard from Simon Burton. He was a special advisor to the Chief Whip under Theresa May and Boris Johnson. But who else? gets to see the Whip's office spreadsheet. Nikki DaCosta was the Director of Leg- Legislative Affairs at Number 10. And she told me why those who control the spreadsheet have all the power. Well, actually, this is a really interesting thing in that the Whips have control of the spreadsheet. And this was a little bit of a tension point between Number 10, particularly during Brexit, and the Whip's office, in that the ability to say, Prime Minister, you don't have the numbers to do this, is a very powerful weapon. But if you don't have to provide the evidence, you can potentially skew policy in the direction that you wish to. So very, um, I, I wish to say that Number 10 had access to those spreadsheets, but they don't usually. So your role of trying to see legislation onto the statute book, so promise made by Prime Minister, you know, either in an announcement or in a manifesto commitment, you're then tasked with seeing the, the policy through and getting it all signed off and that sort of thing. But ultimately, there's a, there's a massive stumbling block in that. If you, if you are up against people who are saying there are or are not the numbers for this, but you don't totally know. Yeah, so ideally you're looking for the legislative team to be working really closely with the Whip's office for there to be complete trust. And so the, whip's office, the chief whip turns around and says, look, Nikki, I think there's a problem. I don't think we've got the numbers. We're going to have to do some sort of concession. Can you work on designing it? And that was my job, to find the way through, to give away the least possible amount of our policy intent in order to satisfy the rebels. And and much has been said about sort of the breakdown in that relationship during the Brexit period. But the tension emerged when that those that that the, there wasn't necessarily the honesty with the prime minister as to exactly what the numbers were or just an inability to know really exactly how close you were to the line did you really have to concede at that particular moment and i suppose you know what was once brexit and trying to get a brexit deal through you know right now is a mini budget but the same things apply that there's there's clearly political capital at stake here if you are seen to give too much ground but if you only give a little bit of ground you don't win anyone over that's a that's a problem as well absolutely and and it, it's it's always you cannot take it as a single vote you've got to look at how they contaminate others the message that people take away from the fact that you've moved and and uh we always talk about people getting a taste for rebellion I have to break it to number 10. That taste has been embedded for, for years now. The party is at a, the most rebellious it has been for a very, very long time. And a lot of that is to do with being government and sort of a complacency that, that sort of comes in. And it's really interesting as well because at the moment you kind of have preemptive rebellions. Uh, number 10 is, is or, or people in uh, different parts of government are floating ideas um, largely as a way to try and fill in this, this, this hole in the finances. 
MPs are catching wind of that and then going, I don't like the sound of it, so I better signal now that there's a problem or signal that I'm going to create a problem. And then, and then you have the government reversing. And the problem about that is means that essentially you're, you're losing capital just on the floating of ideas and you don't get any credit for what you've actually done because you seem to be forced that way. Yeah, we coined the, uh, the term pre-bellion during the Tory party conference after uh, Penny Mordaunt came out against uh, not increasing benefits in line with inflation. Uh, something which isn't actually yet government policy. So they're not only just, you know, the government's not only just having to deal with fights about things which actually exist, they're already having to deal with rebellions on things which don't yet exist. So having been there in number 10, trying to get a programme through in the face of mounting opposition in the spreadsheet, does it reach a tipping point where you just have to say, look, this this isn't working? Is there ever a way back from that? I think you have to take a step back in that usually... Rebellion's going to coalesce on a few areas, and lots of other stuff is going to just go by, uh, and it's going to be passed relatively easily. And yeah. so, you know, a good operation is going to think about, okay, look, we can we can still make progress over here. Let's keep that going while we're distracted over here. And and so, you should be able to do something. The issue is when it is it is all pervasive, and you are again, you know, you're playing constant whack a mole. If you don't have a plan and also you don't know what is strategically the most important thing that you've got to get done, you don't know when a fight is important or how to to judge it. And I think that's one of the issues at the moment in that the operation is on the back foot responding, as you say, to this wonderful term of pre-rebellions. And so therefore it feels messy and that's going to encourage people to rebel. And there was a point, particularly the early days of the May government, that yes, there was a big argument about Brexit, but we're able to make a bit of progress on some other thing. You know, th- there was a big debate happening in the Tory party on that, but maybe on, I don't know, health and education and other things. But right now, this seems like the open season. You know, if you were, if you were sitting in number 10 right now, you'd be thinking, well, is there anything that we could get most Tory MPs to vote in favour of? You'd probably go quite granular. It is no mistake that during sort of Theresa May's era, the, le- the bills were small and narrow, you know, the smart smart meters, um, automotive vehicles, space industry bill, you know, these are not, you know, politically controversial, but you sort of incrementally did good things in good industries. The question is, is, is how much of that kind of legislation is around versus sort of the more challenging stuff? And, you know, a lot of the supply side measures that have been mentioned do require quite meaty legislation and do have a long lead-in time as well. So just finally then, Nikki, if you were sitting in number 10 right now, what would you suggest? I think one of the things that, that, that I'm struck with in the commentary is people saying, oh, you know, we're going you know, to whip them really hard, we're going to restore discipline, we're going to remove the whip. And they'd like to hark back to what we did in 2019, in September 2019, when you removed the whip from uh, a lot of Conservative MPs. I, I think this is to misjudge... Uh, the nature of whipping. Um, my father loves a quote, which is, you know, beatings will continue until morale improves. And the problem is that when you have, once you remove the whip, all your power is gone. And in that particular situation, we were going to lose. It didn't matter if we lost by 10 or 20, we were going to lose. And therefore, removing the whip actually served a completely different function, which was to tell MPs and the public, this is a different operation. And so I think, you know, you're seeing, you know, they are doing the carrot, they're saying out to the tea rooms, we're seeing that, you know, they're doing the, you know, the, uh, the policy lunches, you know, the traditional bits. But this briefing about 
you know, going hard on the MPs. Unless you know how you're going to do that and, you know, whether you have the ability to follow through, that's going to be difficult. So I would just say rein back that tendency to talk to the journalists about how you're going to whip. Well, that was Nikki DeCosto, who's an advisor in number 10, all about talking about crunching the numbers in the famous political spreadsheet. It's not just the whips who are keeping them, lots of journalists too. We're still only up to five Tory MPs who have publicly called for Liz Truss to go. It's fair to say, after my trip down to Westminster yesterday, there are plenty of others who, who think she should go, uh, but uh, nobody quite knows how or indeed who should replace her. We'll keep our tabs on that, updating our own spreadsheet uh, throughout the show, throughout the day here on Times Radio. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. And we bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.